all began after the dragons disappeared. Death and her black robes, all skin and bones. Well, no skin at all, just bones. Surrounding the table were fairies and elves and gnomes and leprechauns, and at the head of the table was the Queen Banshee herself. We love stories! It's time for the Apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. And I'm Sam Payne, your host. I'm going to bring them to you. It's always a pleasure to have you tune in every time that you're with us. We love that you're bringing these stories into your home and into your heart. And no matter how fantastical the story, we hope that the tales that we bring you on the Apple Seed spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share as stories with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling, that kind of sharing makes for memories that can last a lifetime. You can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. Not only the full hour-long episodes of the Appleseed that you enjoy, but podcast-only extras, usually just a few minutes long, for when you have just a few minutes and want to fill that few minutes with a great story. Today, we've got a lot uh, coming up. we got a lot to pack into this hour, a story from Kevin Cordy called The Whispering Bridge of Fukushima, a story with a moral you'll appreciate. You'll hear from Rosie Couture with a story called Kevin and the Lady from her The Blackthorn Walking Stick collection. You'll hear uh, from Brian Fox Ellis, the Illinois storyteller. He'll tell us a story called The Puka and The Penny Whistle. And you'll also hear from Jane Stenson with a story called The Sleeping Porch. But we thought we'd begin with a story called Dragonry. This is from the Scottish storyteller Jess Smith. It's a story that ponders the notion that the best storytellers may not even be human. The storyteller in this story is a dragon. Legend is full of them. They're often terrifying, but according to Jess, they're also great with a story. And while most of them are gone from the world, there's still at least one around, the one in Jess Smith's Dragonory. We're happy to start off our hour together with this tale. Here's Jess Smith. Hello there. My name is Jess Smith. I am part of Britain's Travelling Gypsy People, and I want to tell you now about how I became a storyteller. When I was very small, living on the road, it would always be the practice in the evening, after our outside fire was flamed and supper eaten, for us children to sit around the fire in a circle and listen to our favourite gypsy tales. Old Uncle William was the master storyteller. But you know, when in his story mode, he never referred to himself as a storyteller. He said when we all called him King of the Tales that he wasn't a man nor a woman, nor black nor white, nor any colour in between. He wasn't old, nor was he young, wasn't a dog or a cat or a bird or a fish. He said he was invisible, yet he wore a bright multicoloured coat so folks could see him coming far off. So then, kids, what am I? He would ask us all as we sat wide-eyed in wonderment at what kind of creature he would be, especially for us. But, you know, we knew exactly what he was because each night he would sit us around and pretend to be the old dragon. What you call me, kids? He'd laugh and call out so that every child in the green would gather round. All together we'd shout as loud as we could, You're Dragon Ori, so tell us a story. 
He's long dead, is my old uncle William. But if you'll give me your ears, I'll share his old ways with all you young people. Are you listening now? This is how it all began. Dragons don't come about nowadays. Don't see many call for them, I suppose, with them being extinct and all that stuff. It's a shame that, because they make wonderful storytellers. Yes, honest. You see, in times that were neither here nor there, when rivers ran uphill and birds flew backwards, dragons ruled the land. Great heaving brutes with red eyes and green scaly wings would glide over the land, watching and seeing everything. Nobody liked them, though. You wouldn't neither if there was always the chance that your back end might get flamed by their fiery breath if they happened to skid land behind you on the ground, that is, if you lived away back in them times, of course. Do you know that dragons told tales of witches, fairies and boggly goblins and jaggy hedgehogs and shiny feathered crows and many creatures big and small? Now, no one knows why, but after months of heavy rain, the old people said, Dragons were seen less and less, and they thought that the dragons were allergic to water. Shame that, because, as I said, they were brilliant storytellers. What's that you say? You'd like to know more about dragons? Well, don't tell a living soul, but I happen to know where one lives. Yes, hand over heart, it's really positively true. A real live dragon. Oh, he's not as big as those other ones, not as scaly, and his breath, well, it's more of a hiss than a flame. But I think if we ask him, I'm sure he'd tell us some tales. How can we do that? I hear you all ask in unison. Well, at your age, it's possible to think mystic and magic. You can still sing with birds and speak to hamsters. So, while you're still a young person, let's go on call Dragonori the Story Dragon. Close eyes now. Come on, no peeking. Are your eyes tightly closed? Good. Now if you're relaxed, I want you to think dragon. Dragon. Can you see him? Isn't he small? He's the same size as you. And there's no hot flaming tongue or deep red eyes. Just a small, slightly green-coloured sort of frog-like, lizard-fish sort of smiling-faced creature. Hello, Dragonori. I've got some young people to hear stories. Are you ready? Now sit back and he'll tell you how his storytelling began. Hi there, guys and dolls. Nice to meet you. Well, it all began after the dragons disappeared. I was terrified, me being so helpless and small, but hey, I couldn't let people know that or they'd not take dragon roar seriously. And as I was the last dragon, it was important to frighten them people. So I built a woody bridge and sits it on a river, and I roared at whoever should try to cross my bridge. Them people were afraid, so to cross over the river they paid me money. I had a big bag of gold money, and as my bag got bigger, so did my power. One day a boy came along, and he said, I need to go over the bridge because my granny's sick in her bed and my mom has packed a basket for her. I told the silly boy if he wanted so bad to cross the river, he needed money, lots and lots of money. He said, 
Uncle Toki, what's your name and why does you want money? I told this Toki I didn't tell people my name because I was the fearsome dragon and he had to give me money, no money, no crossing. He just stared at me, that Toki boy, and did not even flinch a muscle, not even when I stared my big red eyes at his tiny blue ones. He must have been very brave boy because he just stood there and stared right back. Mm, he's mad, I thought. Has to be. Anyone else would have run off. So I felt sorry for this Toki and thought I'd try him with a riddle. I knew he'd never get the answers in a million trillion years. People are stupid and dragons are wise. So I said to this Toki fella, Three riddles for you, my lad, and a hundred gold pieces each wrong answer he gives me. And you, you see, he'd never get the right ones. The answers, that is. Go on then, dragon. I'm not afraid of you and your riddles, because my teacher told me I was the cleverest in my school. So bring on your riddles. So with my green and my red thinking brain working harder than ever, I said, How many stars in the night sky? Yes, think on that clever toky fella. And number two, who's the bravest and the fiercest creature in the upside-down world? Oh, I could see him getting this silly look in his face, and I knew he was dumped. Number three, I said, is the hardest one of all. What's me thinking? Now, go home to wherever you's come from and don't bother me again until you've got the answers. Or the money. Toki fella didn't go away. Instead, he stares me right in the eye and says... I'll take some time, but if you leave me in peace for an hour or so and keep your stupid mouth closed, I'll work out the answers. But if I get them right, will you leave this bridge free for everyone to use? <clears throat> I was so angry with this toky fella, so I raised my scaly spine and I shook my tail so hard it knocked him flat. Now will you go away, I asked him. He was braver than I first thought because he dusted off his trousers and he sat back down. He said I was taking advantage and not playing fair, said I was a nasty dragon. Then he said with his hands on his hips, I'll answer your riddles if you take a swim in the river for an hour or two. I shivered, because that old river was full up of water, and I hated water, so I thought, well, maybe I'll not say anything, then he'll go away. He'll have to, because he won't ever get the answers to my riddles, and that's the truth. After two hours, I was getting hungry and bored with Toki and was about to chase him off when he jumped up and he said, There are 93 trillion and 75 billion and 43 million and 22 stars in the whole heavens. I said, How can you tell that? And he said, If I didn't believe him, then why don't I count them? Mm, I was fuming. But let that one go. Next he says, See you, dragon. You are the most bravest creature in the whole upside-down world, and the reason I know that is because you are hanging by your jagged tail, looking at your reflection in the water. And everybody knows dragons are terrified of water, so to do what you're doing means you're very, very, very brave. Mm, you're so right, I told him, and I gave him that one too. But no way will he get the last one, so I says to him, well, Toki, my boy, not even the worms in the boggly swamps knows what I'm thinking right now. And next to me, they are the cleverest creatures. So there. He didn't answer me, and I could see he was getting nowhere. But begumps a begorks, what do you think the little fella goes and says at the last minute? 
you're thinking that I'm a stupid boy and I'm going to walk away. How could such a little runt know that? I got so angry with that cheeky chappy that I jumped up too far. I toppled over the bridge and I splashed into the killer water. But that brave lad, he swam in and he pulled me out before all my scales fell off. He saved my life, did he? Well, I had to let him go over my bridge then, didn't I? And after he came back from visiting his granny, he told me she had a good laugh. So much so it made her feel well again, and she said that I should be a storyteller. I was brilliant at telling tales, and from that day to this, that's what I am. I'm old now, an old dragon. I'm a dragon or a tell-a-story monster. A fanciful story from Jess Smith called Dragonory, a story about how a dragon became a storyteller. Happy to begin our hour with that tale. We've got a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Kevin Cordy with a story called The Whispering Bridge of Fukushima, a story with a moral that you will appreciate. Brian Fox Ellis and Rosie Couture coming up as well. And you won't want to miss a single word. You know, uh, we mentioned to you that you can find us online at byuradio.com org slash Appleseed or Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. And we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you might like to share as stories. And we'd love for you to share those stories with us. Let us know what you're thinking with an email dropped at uh, the Appleseed at BYU.edu. Again, that's the Appleseed at BYU. Edu. We love to hear from you. Again, a lot coming up. Stick around for Kevin Cordy in just a moment here on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's a pleasure to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a fanciful tale from Jess Smith, the Scottish storyteller, Or is she a dragon? It's a story about how a dragon became a storyteller, a story called Dragonory. And we're going to get to uh, a lot more this hour. We're going to hear from the Illinois storyteller Brian Fox Ellis and from Rosie Couture and from Jane Stenson with a story called The Sleeping Porch. But first... We'll bring you a story that can teach you something, a story with a moral. Now, a lot of people prefer their stories without a hard and fast moral delivered at the end of the story. They like to figure out what the story might be teaching them and leave the story open to a degree of interpretation. But stories with morals are also an important part of the storytelling tradition. People have been using stories of all kinds to teach people how to behave in the real world, to teach people one principle or another, using stories that are sometimes quite fanciful, including this story from Kevin Cordy about a girl who fell in love with a man who turned into a tree. And her father is not pleased, and he's determined that the only solution is to cut down the tree. However, forcing someone to do what you think is best for them often doesn't work out the way you might think it might. Kevin Cordy is a doctor of education and storytelling and story making, and he'll tell you about that poor tree and its fate in a story called The Whispering Bridge of Fukushima, here on The Appleseed. The wisest person is one who accepts differences, unlike the father in this story.
There was once a beautiful young woman, the daughter of the village's richest man, and the man wanted her to marry more than anything. But she had no interest in anyone that she met. One day she was walking out into the woods, and she heard a whisper, and she looked around and she saw a very tall, very beautiful man. And the man and her eyes met, and it was almost love at first sight. And after they talked for a while, she knew she was in love. And so she stayed into that forest until it was night, and then she ran home and she told her father, "I have found the one I want to marry. He lives somewhere out in the forest. He's a beautiful person. I am so happy." And her father was worried. Said, "Go out and find out who this man is. We know not where his family's from, where he was born. Find out." And the next day she would creep out into the forest, and she would meet him. And this went on for weeks and weeks. And one day her father said, "Follow him, find out where they go." And so they did. The king's servants followed him, and when he looked, they noticed that at night time, the man was not a man at all, but he would turn into a large tree with a solid trunk. And they ran back, and they told their father, he, he, "He's not a man. He's not a human at all. He's a tree." My daughter wants to marry a tree. I will not have it. Cut that tree down. So, in early morning, they went out and they brought with them many axes, and they began to cut, and cut, and cut, and the splinters flew everywhere. And they cut long into the evening, but they couldn't cut that solid trunk down, and so they went home to return to their work the next day. The next day they came out, and instead of seeing a tree that was needing to be cut, they saw a whole tree, and so they'd cut again, and they'd cut, and they'd cut, but they still couldn't finish their work, so they ran. We can't cut the tree. Every time we cut it, it grows back. It's almost as if it's magic. I don't know what to do," the father said in anguish. But he looked, and coming up the bank, was a creature, almost human, but almost that, like a shrub. And he said, "I can help you. The herbs will not accept me, and the trees reject me as well." It will be sweet justice if I let you know the secret of the tree. I will pay you handsomely,、uh, and he did. He paid him lots and lots of money. The secret is: every time you cut, you must take the wood chips and you must burn them, or they will heal themselves. And he slid it away, just like he arrived. He said, "Servants, go out, but this time, burn those wood chips." And they cut, and they burned, cut, and they burned, and the tree poured forth a sap, but it was the color of blood. And the next day they came, and they cut the tree, so that it fell, 
and when it fell, they brought ten men to carry it. For you see, they were going to build a new bridge. The river needed a new bridge, so they were going to carry the tree and make a bridge, but it wouldn't move. Ten, twenty, thirty, fifty men couldn't move that tree. The king said, I don't know what to do. And then he remembered his daughter. When he opened the door in his daughter's room, there were tears in her eyes. She had been crying, it looked like for weeks. She had lost her love. And she said, Father, what have you done? I loved him, Father. I loved him more than anything in the world. And the father pleaded. He said, Your people need a bridge. Please help us. And she stood up, and she sat on the tree, and as the tears rolled out of her eyes onto the trunk, they could move it. They built a bridge, strong, very strong. On the day that they announced the bridge and it was completed, the daughter died, and they say it was of a broken heart. If you walk on that bridge at night, when no one's around, you can hear two voices, one loud and strong voice, and one feminine voice, and they're laughing, and they're happy. It took many years, but they replaced that bridge with a steel one. They say in this place in Japan, a piece of that bridge was preserved and placed in a small museum. And the curator of that museum comes over at night, and in that glass case they still hear those whispers, and they're still happy. The Whispering Bridge of Fukushima, told for you by Kevin Cordy, a story that reminds us to let people live their own lives and continue to love them always through it. Coming up, we got a story from Rosie Couture. Rosie Couture has been performing as a professional storyteller for 15 years, and in this tale, she describes the life of a young man by the name of Kevin while stuck in a job that he hates, trying to support his family on a meager wage. He still has the heart to be kind. His kindness, however, gets him fired. And depressed, he makes a deal with death in order to keep his family fed. When all seems lost, it's his original kindness that makes all the difference. Here's Rosie Couture with Kevin and the Lady, here on The Appleseed. My last story comes from the British Isles. English storyteller Amy Douglas collected it, I've titled my version, Kevin and the Lady. As he went out on a dark night, on a dark night cold and lonely, he met a lady all in black, her face and fingers bony. And she went lit-a-doodle-lit-a-doodle-lit-a-doodle-lay And she hidled on a D and she hidled on a D and she land And she went lit-a-doodle-lit-a-doodle-lit-a-doodle-day And she hidled on a D and she hidled on a D and she land And she hidled on the D and she land 
Kevin was a fisherman, which was unfortunate because Kevin hated fish. He hated the sight of fish. He hated the smell of fish. He hated the taste of fish. But Kevin had a family to support, a wife and ten children. And Kevin lived in a little village by the sea. And and when you live in a little village by the sea, about the only job you can find is that of a fisherman. And so Kevin was a fisherman. Every day, he would go out into that fishing boat and haul in net loads of fish. To make matters worse, his boss, Clancy, was not very kind. He was a hard-hearted man. Everything Kevin did seemed to be wrong. One day, as Kevin was hauling a huge net full of fish onto the boat, he saw on the top a beautiful fish— one he'd never seen the likes of before. Its scales were rainbow-colored, like a rainbow after a storm. And its eyes, its eyes, he'd never seen eyes like that. They weren't blue, and they weren't exactly green. They were almost turquoise. Kevin couldn't bear the thought of seeing the fish killed, or even worse, having the fish put in a tank so everybody could stare at it. And so, making sure Clancy wasn't around, he reached down and gently tossed the fish back into the sea. The fish began to swim away, but then it stopped and looked back at him with those beautiful, beautiful turquoise eyes. It almost looked human. The fish gave a little nod and went on. Kevin! It was Clancy. Kevin, what are you doing? I will not have anyone on this boat who throws my profits back into the sea. You are fired. Fired. When Kevin got back to shore, he began to wander around the town. He couldn't go home. He couldn't face his wife and children with the news that he'd lost his job. Towards evening, he found himself up on a cliff overlooking the sea. The mist had come in, and it was dark and gray and gloomy. He looked down below and saw the waves crashing on the rocks. He knelt down, put his head in his hands, and he began to weep. Just then, he felt a sudden chill. He felt as though someone were watching him. He slowly turned, and there was a woman, all in black, A woman, all skin and bones. (laughs) No skin, just bones. It was death, and she was staring him in the face. Kevin, go ahead. It's all right, son. Go ahead. The sea is calm and peaceful. It won't hurt at all. No, no, I can't. I'm too young. Death knew she was going to have a hard time of convincing Kevin to do anything, so she decided to make a bargain with him. Kevin, what if I gave you something so valuable that you could be rich for the rest of your life? Kevin, I I want to give you a cow, and this cow will give you an endless supply of milk. You can feed your family with it. You can sell the milk. You'll never want for anything anymore, Kevin. 
Well, said Kevin, what would I have to do to earn this cow? Oh, just wait till a year from now. Meet me back here one year from now, and I'll ask you three questions. If, if you can answer those three questions correctly, well, you'll be rich for the rest of your life, or I'll uh, allow you to keep the cow. Kevin then said, well, what if I get the questions wrong? Well, Kevin, you'll have to come with me. Kevin was so tired of his life that he agreed. In the wink of an eye, the woman disappeared, and in her place stood a large cow, big brown eyes staring at him. Kevin led the cow home, and his wife and children were overjoyed to see the animal. Immediately they began to milk it, and they filled a pail full of milk, and then they got another pail and filled that up. They, they sent the children off to the neighbors to get more pails, and they filled the pails up with milk, and the neighbors were astounded. Soon, Kevin indeed was rich with selling the milk and feeding his family with it. For the first time in their lives, they had shoes on their feet, and they didn't go to bed hungry. Now, you know, when things are going well, time passes fast. And that year went by in the wink of an eye. And one year later, Kevin found himself standing on top of the cliff overlooking the ocean. But this night it was beautiful. A full moon looked down on the water. Kevin sensed that someone was standing in the path before him. Expecting to see death, he turned, but instead he saw a woman, a tall, beautiful woman in a rainbow-colored dress, and her eyes, her eyes, they looked turquoise. And then Kevin felt a chill, and he sensed someone else there. Turning, he saw death on the other side. Death in her black robes, all skin and bones. Well, no skin at all, just bones. And death began to glide towards him. Kevin, I'm here. Are you ready for your three questions? Yes, he is. And that was your first question. It was the woman in the rainbow-colored dress speaking. Death was angry. She glared at Kevin. Ah, oh, Kevin, uh, are you going to let this... this Woman, do your talking for you? Yes, he is. And that was your second question. The rainbow-colored dress woman spoke again. Death pointed a bony finger at the woman and without thinking said, Who are you anyway? I am the queen of all the fish in the sea, and I have come to repay a debt. And that was your third question. Be gone, Death. You have no business here with this young man. And with that, death disappeared into a dark cloud of smoke. And Kevin found himself alone again, staring out onto the beautiful sea, with the bright full moon shining down on him. And she went lit-a-doodle-lit-a-doodle-lit-a-doodle-lay, and she hiled on the D, and she hiled on the D, and she landed and she went little doodle, little doodle, little doodle day, and she hiled on the D, and she hiled on the D, and she landed and she hiled on the D, and she landed
Rosie Cotrere with Kevin and the Lady. You never know when a little kindness will come back to help you out in the future. Before that, you heard The Whispering Bridge of Fukushima, a story told for you by Kevin Cordy. And at the top of the hour, you heard a story called Dragonory, a story from Jess Smith about... Well, about a dragon who becomes a storyteller. Coming up, we've got a lot more from uh, Brian Fox Ellis, the Illinois storyteller. He's going to bring us a story called The Puka and the Penny Whistle. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard Kevin and the Lady, a story told for you by Rosie Couture. And, of course, you never know when a little kindness is going to come back and help you in the future like it did for Kevin. Coming up now, we've got a story from Brian Fox Ellis, the Illinois storyteller who tells stories from all over the place. Not only stories about American historical figures, but also all kinds of other stories, folk tales from both sides of the Atlantic. This one is from Ireland. It's called The Puka and the Penny Whistle. It's the story of a boy who plays the penny whistle, and he's quite bad at it at the beginning, and it isn't until he stumbles upon a magical gathering on the longest night of the year that uh, the boy is able to take his penny whistle skills to a new level. Brian Fox Ellis with The Puka and the Penny Whistle, here on The Appleseed. A long time ago, there was a half-wit, a fool, in the town of Dunmore, in the county Galway. Now, he played the penny whistle, but he played quite poorly. But the old men at the pub, they would make sport of him. They'd toss him a few coin and say, play, play, we've paid the piper, play. And he'd play terribly. Everyone had a good laugh. <laughs> and the man didn't mind because it bought another pint of ale. <laughs> but we'll ate one night, and it happened to be the longest night, the winter solstice. He had stayed later than usual and maybe had a pint or two too many. And as he was heading home, he crossed the little bridge over the river. And there on the wooden bridge, he heard, Trump, Trump, Trump. He turned and he saw, half man, Half goat, the puka. I think Shakespeare called him Puck. He was a man from the belly button up, and the rest of him, well, <laughs> had cloven hooves and hair and a tail. He had horns upon his head. And the puka said to the lad, Come, come with me. The queen banshee is having a ball tonight, and you shall play. But I don't know how. Yes, you do. And he grabbed the boy and tossed him onto his back and raced along. I don't know how to play, the boy protested. Touch the penny whistle to your lips and play, and you shall know it. The boy touched the penny whistle to his lips, and he began to play. The sweetest song came from the penny whistle. The puka ran through hill and dale, bog and fen, towards Crogpatrick, the mighty hill. He climbed to the very top of Crogpatrick, and with his cloven hoofs, he rapped three times. 
and the side of the hill opened, and they entered. Inside was a long golden table. Surrounding the table were fairies and elves and gnomes and leprechauns, and at the head of the table was the queen banshee herself. Who have you brought with you, she said. It is the best piper and all of County Galway. Well, let him play, let him play. And the boy touched the penny whistle to his lips, and he began to play the sweetest song. Soon the band joined in. Need I tell you, it was the longest night of the year, till finally the puka took the cap from the boy and said, It's time to pay the piper. And soon the cap was filled with fairy gold. I'm as rich as a lord, said the boy, as he stuffed his pockets and placed the cap upon his head. The puka snatched the boy and tossed him onto his back, left Crocopatrick. The boy held on to the long horns of the puka as they raced through bog and fen, hill and dale. And the puka dropped him back at the bridge where they had met not so many hours before. And you have two gifts to remind you of this night. Not only the gift of gold, but the other half of your wits. And from this day forward, you shall be the finest player of the penny whistle in all of Galway. The boy was so excited, he ran all the way home. When he arrived, the cottage door was locked. He knocked and knocked. Who is it? said his mother. It is I, your son, the finest player of the penny whistle in all of Erin. You've had too much to drink. You're drunk. But the mother opened the door. The boy came in, and he emptied his pockets on the bed. The mother's eyes were ablaze with all the gold. But just that moment, the sun rose and as the first rays of light struck the gold, it turned to leaves and twigs. They were crestfallen, until the boy touched the penny whistle to his lips, and he began to play. was the sweetest music he'd ever heard and he was known from that day hence as the finest player in all of Aaron
The Puka and the Penny Whistle, told for you by Brian Fox Ellis here on The Appleseed. We've got time for one more story for you, and this one is from Jane Stenson. Have you ever had an experience where you couldn't figure out whether you were awake or dreaming? When you wake up the next morning, you have to think about it for a while because it felt real. Maybe you find out it was a dream, but maybe you find out it wasn't. And the next story takes place in that in-between state. Not quite a dream, not quite real, but... Maybe it was real. The story is, again, from Jane Stenson, who grew up in Connecticut. And it comes from a collection called From the Connecticut Woods. The story is called The Sleeping Porch. We're happy to bring it to you, this story from Jane Stenson. Before she gets started, we want to remind you that you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There's an archive there of all of the episodes of the show, more than a thousand episodes and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. And now... The Sleeping Porch, from Jane Stenson, here on The Appleseed. In my house growing up, we had a room we called The Sleeping Porch on the second floor in the back of the house. I slept there only in summer as it had no heat and only two real walls. The others were screens with no shades because we had no neighbors. It was dark on The Sleeping Porch until your eyes adjusted. If I looked west, I could see into the top of the big pine tree, and if I looked north, I could see above the fruit trees right into the woods. I could hear everything that happened in the woods at night. Sometimes an owl sat in the big pine and hoo-hoo-hooted, and then a branch would lift, and I would strain to hear the sound of wings disappearing, Or sometimes I heard animals battle with grunts and squawks and little shrieks. One night, I heard and I saw all those things together. The owl hooted, and something small and gray moved close to the ground. I heard a branch lift, and then a grunt and a shriek, and something snapped. The owl was gone. And so was the little something. Silence. A black horse stepped from the woods and cantered along the path that ran behind the orchard around to the west side of the house and stopped next to the pine tree. Pawing the ground, he whinnied and he shook his head and neck. And then he evaporated. He he just disappeared in the night air. I didn't run and tell my parents. Instead, I waited till the next morning, and I told the dogs. They looked up at me with their tongues hanging out, and they rolled their eyes back in their head, and they wagged their tails. What do you think that's all about, I asked them. They said, we don't know. Let's go for a walk in the woods and check it out. Dogs are so practical. So off we went. Dogs in front, noses to the ground, tails high, looking for a scent. The path led up from the back door between the apple and the pear trees and turned west along the woods road along the top of a cliff escarpment where my mother had a rock garden. Wild daisies grew there, and I picked them and made a daisy chain and fashioned it into a necklace and put it round my neck. We walked past the gardens where the woods road became a path that made a hard right. It narrowed and went into the woods. 
We walked for a long, long time until the dogs stopped at a thick, tall stump. They went immediately to point, so I knew I should look around. Now, the top of the tree had broken off some time before and lay off to the side in the woods grass. On the stump, the roots were high, exposed, really, as if something small could walk in and out of the bottom of the tree. A burl, an outgrowth ledge, stuck out the back. All of this was interesting, but it was, after all, just a stump. I couldn't see what the dogs were so concerned about, so I called them off point, and we walked home. That night, up on the sleeping porch, again, the owl hooted for a long time from the pine tree. Finally, the branch lifted, and I waited. I willed that horse from the woods. Along the back of the house, but, but galloping this night on the path, his mane and tail spreading behind him, came the black horse. He reached the top of the cliff and he reared, his neck and his head twisting, his forelegs pawing the air, fighting an imaginary foe. He screamed and leapt from the cliff, racing at full gallop off down the woods road. I ached for that horse to stop. Just past the fields where he would turn into the woods, he reared again and he whirled, his front hooves landing, first one, then the other, so gently back on the earth. He shook his neck and he snorted and turned and trotted back to the house and stopped under the pine tree. He pawed the ground. He arched his neck. His nostrils quivered. I could see his sides heaving in and out. He lifted his head and his large black eyes looked up to the sleeping porch at me. He raked the ground with his foreleg and gave a soft whinny, and he shook his head. He looked impatient. And then he began to dance, in time to some unheard music, lightly, gracefully, eight crossover steps to the right and back, high, prancing steps in a circle, and then out the other way and back. He faced the sleeping porch and extended his forelegs and bowed low to me, his nose almost touching the ground. And then he just disappeared. Who could sleep? I tell you, I ran down the back stairs, I grabbed a flashlight, I went out the back door, past the fruit trees onto the path, searching for evidence, evidence that that horse was real. Where were the footprints? At the top of the cliff, next to the pine tree? Where? Nothing. The next morning, I had another talk with the dogs. How could you sleep through all that, I asked them. You're supposed to be watchdogs. How could you sleep? Yeah, 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 they said. We helped you look yesterday. We took you right to the place, and you couldn't find anything. Let's go for a walk in the woods and look again. Oh, and be sure to make another daisy chain necklace for protection. What? I said. But they were off, noses to the ground, tails high. I picked more daisies from the top of the cliff, and I made a necklace. We all turned right, and we walked deep into the woods. As we neared the stump, the hair on the back of the dogs raised right up, and they stood stock still at point.
I looked around, but everything looked about the same as the day before. The stump, the high roots, the burl. Well, maybe something's in the long woods grass. Those yellow grasses were slumped over, matting on the ground, and I began to spread the grass with my fingers searching. Oh, I found a small gray stone. Kind of a round and flat stone, a hole bored in the middle. No, no, not in the middle. The hole was actually slightly off center. It, it looked naturally formed, maybe from some natural cause, like a drip, drip of water for the last a hundred years or something. Or maybe it was something else. For all its smoothness, there was a wildness about the rock, so I turned it over and over in my hands. And then I put the hole up to my eye to see what I could see. I saw circles. Green circles of long, thin woods grass. I took the stone away, and I saw no circles. Back to my eye, and there they were again, green circles of moving grass. No, not moving grass, but small fairies dancing in three circles round and round the tree stump. They were humming, or speaking something I couldn't understand. They saw the dogs, and as a group, they started dancing toward the dogs. The dogs moaned, low, rumbling growls in their throats, and the fairies were upon them, pinching and laughing and humming and pinching, pinching my dogs. I, I called the dogs off point, and they took off, tails between their legs as though they'd been stung by a hundred bees. I put the stone in my pocket, and the fairies disappeared. I walked home. When I got there, I found a leather lace, and I put it through the hole in the stone and tied it around my neck. I just couldn't wait for the night to come, and I spent the afternoon on the sleeping porch. When it finally did get dark, the owl must have hooted for an hour, maybe more, and then it flew away. I waited, and I watched. Out from the woods, the black horse cantered. Graceful, sure-footed, with arched neck and quivering nostrils, ears alert, and those large black eyes, he made the turn to the house and quietly cantered down to the pine tree, and he stood still and looked up, waiting. For what? For me. I ran downstairs, out the back door, fingers crossed, around the back of the house, looked at the pine tree, and he was there, the black horse. Oh! I grabbed hold of the mane. I swung myself up, knees in, heels down. The horse turned to the path, prancing, and cantered so smoothly I didn't even bounce Across the top of the cliff and into the woods, it seemed like a different path, yet very much the same. We jumped fallen trees and rock walls, swished through the tall grasses, cantering easily. We arrived at a huge wooden castle with high portals at the entrance and a balcony. It was surrounded by three rings of moving woods grass. No, not grass. People. Fairy-like people, just my size, who danced eight crossover steps to the right and back, 
high leaps round in a small circle. My horse knew the dance, and he joined in. Oh, he made me laugh! Look, me on a dancing black horse. One of the fairy dancers came close, smiling. When my horse bowed at the end of the set, she snatched the necklace from around my neck and ran off between the wood portals straight into the castle. I started to dismount, but my horse stood up quickly and kept on with the dance. The necklace was gone. We did have a wonderful time laughing and dancing until we completed all three circles, and then the horse trotted easily to the path. But we seemed so much higher, larger. I looked down at the dancing fairies in their three green circles and at their castle, that now looked strangely like a stump with high roots and a burl ledge. Wait! My necklace is hanging on the ledge. She took my necklace and she put it on the burl. I tried to dismount, but the horse jumped and cantered off. I barely hung on. Above all, I did not want to be left in the woods in the middle of the night, and I hung on until I regained my seat. We galloped through and out of the woods, across the top of the cliff, and the horse stopped next to the pine tree. I slid off that horse and threw my arms around his neck. He was so beautiful. The horse nickered softly and bobbed his head, bringing his muzzle lightly into the small of my back. I walked back into the house, up the back stairs to the sleeping porch. And the next morning, I had a talk with the dogs. I told them everything. They wagged their tails when I told them I got to ride the horse in the woods. They rolled their eyes and they barked a little bit when I told them that the necklace was truly lost. And they laughed and laughed when I told them about the dancing. Well, the dog said, we could all go for a walk in the woods and we could check it out. Jane Stenson with The Sleeping Porch here on The Appleseed. It's been an hour that has seen that story as well as stories from all kinds of other great storytellers. Brian Fox Ellis with his story The Puka and the Penny Whistle and Kevin and the Lady by Rosie Couture, that story about kindness. And, of course, that story from Kevin Cordy called The Whispering Bridge of Fukushima and Dragonori, the story about the dragon who becomes the storyteller Jess Smith. What a pleasure to bring you that tale here on The Apple Seed. It's fun to bring you these stories, and of course we always hope that the stories, no matter how fantastical, can find their way into your heart in such a way that they spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of sharing can make for memories that last a lifetime. This hour was written by Trent Horton. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Our audio engineer Stuart Foster. I'm Sam Payne. We do hope you join us again on The Apple Seed for more stories Stories for you and your family. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.